The very last time that Jesus appeared to Paul, he said to him, be encouraged, Paul, just as you have told people about me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome. So Paul decided or figured out based on what God had said to him or what the Lord had said to him, Paul said, I know I'm going to Rome based on what the Lord had said. That was where God was planning to do some work. And uh, he said, you're going to be there in the middle of all that. So this really was a promise from God to Paul. Well, it's just like Satan to then come with an all-out frontal attack to try to disrupt God's plan and to try to discourage God's servant. And that's how he operates. That's how he always operates. Uh, So if you remember from last week, he brought 40 men who plotted to kill the apostle Paul. But I want you to think about this and be amazed at how God outdid Satan. Just think about this. Satan gathered up 40 men to do his work. Well, God used a pagan Roman commander who assembled 470 trained military personnel. (laughs) 40 against 470, I like those odds. Plus, God gave them 70 horses to work with. If you remember, I told you last week that God has unlimited resources to be able to take care of us. He knows what we need, amen? He really does. So you and I need not worry. We just need to trust in the Lord. Now, think again about what God had done for Paul last week. We we talked about how God was in the process of moving Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the sea. He was getting him out of Jerusalem. Uh, he, he safely transported him out of Jerusalem all the way to this special place on the Mediterranean Sea. Anybody ever been on the Mediterranean Sea? I've been to Caesarea by the sea, and it's a beautiful place, even in its ruined state. I can only imagine what it was like then. God got Paul from Jerusalem where his life was in danger to Caesarea where he was safe, and he put put him up in Herod's five-star praetorium, (laughs) a swanky place, a beautiful place, a place that had all kind of luxury. He, He got to stay in the governor's official residence, so... Uh, I would say that he was uh, having a good time, don't you think? Now, Paul had a comfortable trip. He's now staying in the best of accommodations that are available in Caesarea. So when he gets there, what do you think he does? I'm waiting for y'all to answer. (laughs) Paul got there and he waited on God. He waited on God. I'm pretty sure that he was thankful to God for all that God had done for his life or for him. He most assuredly recognized the hand of God on his life. And I'm pretty sure that he praised God for God's providential care. But then when it was all said and done and he arrived and he was in his place, he began to wait on the Lord. He began to wait to see what God was going to do next. Now, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. But I've found out the hard way that I get in far less trouble when I follow behind God than when I get ahead of God. Any of you ever get ahead of God? Some of you have scars to to tell that story with, I'm sure. It's always better to be behind God, knowing what God is doing. If you remember studying from Henry Blackaby, he said years ago that you need to look and see what God is doing and you need to join him. Well, most of us would have to slow down a whole lot to be able to see what God is doing, amen? 
We're pretty busy people. Dr. Don Wilton said, judging by the way most of us go through our days about our daily assignment, he said, I think we all need to slow down. It does seem as, as though each day passes by at mock speed and you and I travel in the fast lane. In our world of instant everything, we seem to believe that God is actually in the, the same hurry that we find ourselves in. But no, my friend, he certainly is not. Besides, he knows the end from the beginning and he has perfectly, his perfectly timed plan for us firmly in the grasp of his loving care. You know, most of us are like a glass of water that's been dipped out of a, a fast-moving stream. Our lives are like that, kind of uh, milky, kind of cloudy, kind of murky, dark. Uh, they're kind of cluttered up. If you take a glass after you dip that water out of that moving stream and you let it set for a little while, the sediment will go to the bottom and the water gets clear so that you can look through it. And that's what we need to do. We need to slow down, sit for a while, spend some time with God, wait on God, and then let the cloudiness of a hurried life settle so that we can know what God is doing, so that we can determine what God desires for our life to do. You know, as King David said, it takes courage to wait on God. Most of us are not good waiters. We tend not to wait on God. We tend to go ahead and decide what we're going to do, and we do it whether God wants us to do it or not. That's the way we function. It takes courage to wait on God. Among the Native American tribe of the Zuni Indians, the cougar is, um, is considered a symbol of courage. And when we went out to Lake Tahoe this last year, last summer, we had an opportunity to buy a, a little uh, stone carving of a cougar that I have on my computer that reminds me to be a person of courage. I look at it every day, and it, it encourages me to be a person of courage. Well, not only do I have that, but I have a special verse from God's Word that reminds me of a promise in God's Word about courage, and it should remind you as well. Psalms twenty-seven fourteen says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and what? He will strengthen your heart. How many of us need our heart strengthened today? We all do. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Yes, it absolutely does take courage to wait on God. It takes effort. It takes energy to wait on what he's doing. But the benefits far outweigh the effort that we would put forth in that. That's exactly what you find Paul doing in Acts chapter 24. This is a chapter that tells of Paul's story about how God was getting him in position for his greatest ministry opportunity. It's also a story that tells one of the tr most tragic examples of missed opportunity in Scripture. As much as this chapter is going to tell about Paul and his story and what God was doing in his life, it also tells the story of a man named Felix who needed to know God in a desperate way. It tells about how God put Paul in a situation to where he could share the gospel with Felix. It tells about how God gave Felix an opportunity to be saved, to know him personally. What's sad is we find that Felix never came to know the Lord, and you're going to see more of that as we go through this this morning. 
He let that opportunity slip right through his hands. And we have absolutely no, no evidence in Scripture whatsoever that Felix ever came to know the Lord. That simply means that his opportunity to be able to get into heaven was lost, forever lost. Now, folks, that happens far more than we realize and far more than we would want to acknowledge or to admit Several years ago, Lifeway did a, a great deal of research on the spiritual lostness in America. Something we don't think a lot about. But they did a, a lot of research and they reported the following conclusions. This is what their report said. In our world today, people live and die without hope. Hope of what? Hope of heaven. They have no hope about how to get there. They have some thoughts but they're not hopeful that it's going to work. They go on to say, in the United States alone, 2.5 million people die every year. That's a lot of people. They go on to say, it is estimated that 75% of the current U.S. population is lost without Christ. I heard somebody say the other day that we were a, a godly nation. I believe we're a nation that has some godly people. And I believe our nation was founded on the principles of God. But I'm afraid we have moved away from where we began. If you do the math based on the stats that Lifeway has produced, that means every hour in the United States there are 214 people that die lost without Christ. 214 people every hour. That's a lot of folks that are dying and headed for an eternal hell. The Bible gives us, if you look in there, you'll find several examples of, of salvation opportunities that were missed and lost forever. I have pulled three out of many. The first that I want to mention this morning is that there were some pagan philosophers that heard Paul preach on Mars Hill there in Athens, Greece. He preached Jesus Christ and when, when it was all said and done, they rejected their opportunity to be saved. What they were really doing, these philosophers were rejecting the existence of God. They wanted more understanding and more wisdom. But they didn't want to believe that there was a God. In Acts 17.32 it said, When they heard Paul speak of the resurrection of a person who had been dead, some laughed. But others said, We want to hear more about this Later, what were they doing? They were procrastinating. They were choosing to wait for another day. But when you study the scripture, you find that there's no record that that day ever came for them. All we know that is that Paul was only there in Athens a short while longer and then he left and he never returned to preach to them again. So my best guess is these men, these philosophers, these people who didn't want to acknowledge the existence of God they died without God because they rejected any knowledge or truth about God. Dr. Luke records another group of people who, had lo who lost opportunities. They were some wannabe disciples that never made that commitment to Christ. Luke chapter 9 verse 57 says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, now just imagine this. A guy walks up to Jesus and he said, I will follow you no matter where you go. That's a pretty bold statement, is it not? But look at what Jesus said. 
Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but I, the son of man, have no home of my own, not even a place to lay my head. Do you realize that Jesus lived his life on earth homeless? Homeless? Had a throne in heaven, but he lived homeless on earth. Look at verse 59. He said to another person, come be my disciple. The man agreed, he said, Lord, first, notice this, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus replied, let those who are spiritually dead care for their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. These wannabe disciples, they wanted to know God. They had a little bit of interest in God. But when it came right down to making a commitment to God, they weren't ready to take that step because it just cost too much. There were other things they needed to do with their life, so they never, never got around to knowing God. Well, there's another person that I want to introduce you to, a guy by the name of Judas. What about Judas? What about Judas? Just think about him for a minute. Here's a man that walked and talked with Jesus daily for three whole years. Only 11 other people in the history of humankind had that opportunity that Judas had. Think about what his life could have become. He could have, he could have sat on one of the 12 thrones in the coming kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. His name could have been inscribed on one of the 12 foundation stones in the celestial heaven. And he could have become one of the most honored saints in all redemptive history. If he'd only become a Christian. But Judas blew it. He wasted his opportunity. Instead of becoming a Christian, what did he become? A thief, a traitor, and a hypocrite. He threw away his opportunity for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible says he went out and he committed suicide and he was condemned to an eternity incarcerated in hell. Listen to what Jesus said about him. He said, when he gathered those men together, one of you who is eating with me now will betray me. For I, the son of man, must die and the scripture, as the scripture declared long ago. But how terrible it would be for my betrayer. Far better for him if he had never been born. What is equally sad is that you and I, we all know people who are dying without Jesus that are headed for hell. We know them. We have family members. We have friends who are dying every day who do not know the Lord and they're going to spend an eternity separated from God. Judas looked like a Christian. Think about this. He looked like a Christian. He walked like a Christian. He talked like a Christian. But in the end, he was lost without God. He was an imposter. Now, if you take Felix and you take Judas and you put them together, you find that they had a great deal in common. Judas lived, excuse me, yeah, Judas lived three years with Jesus. Felix, well, he didn't live with Jesus, but he had Paul in his palace for two years. So he had the word of God around him. 
Judas had many opportunities to personally talk with Jesus. They had a lot of conversations, I'm sure. Felix would call Paul, bring him out of his cell, bring him into his presence, and he would listen to him as Paul talked about Jesus. So he heard the word of God. Judas betrayed the Son of God for money. Well, Felix kept hoping that Paul would bribe him with some money for his freedom. Judas betrayed Jesus to the Jewish authorities. Fearing those same Jewish authorities, Felix betrayed Paul by refusing to release him when he knew that he was innocent. Judas sealed his eternal fate with a rope and a noose. Felix did the same by not doing what he could have done when he had opportunity to accept Christ. He rejected the Son of God. He put off for another day what he could have done that day. And as a result, he never made it into heaven. Paul goes to trial, and Dr. Luke records three phases of that trial. We're going to look at that today in depth. Not only was Paul on trial, but I, I commit, submit to you that Christianity was on trial, just like it is today. Our, our faith in Christ is on trial. Everything that we've been raised to believe about God is being tested and tried, and, and, and sadly, a lot of it's being thrown out the window. It hurts me to say this, but our nation is becoming more and more of a godless nation and not a godly nation. Trust me, Christianity is on trial. Beginning in verse 1, we see phase 1 of the trial that Paul had to deal with. We see the prosecution. The lawyer for the Jews state, states three charges against Paul. They charged him with sedition. They said Paul was guilty of violating Roman law. They charged him with sectarianism. They said he violated the Jewish law. They even charged him with sacrilege, say, saying that he had violated the law of God. But when you do your research and you study what I've studied, you'll see that all of these charges against Paul were trumped up. They were very broad, very vague. There's no proof of any specific crime. They don't even mention specific instances in when Paul, which Paul had done something wrong. All of the charges uh, really equal nothing but a bunch of lies. If anybody's guilty, it's the Jews for falsely accusing Paul. Look with me at verse 1. It says, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish leaders and the lawyer Tertullus to press charges against Paul. When Paul was called in, Tertullus laid charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. Your Excellency, you have given peace to us Jews and have enacted reforms for us. And, and for all of this, we are very grateful to you. But lest I bore you, kindly give me your attention for only a moment as I briefly outline our case against this man. You notice the lawyer doesn't say a whole lot about uh, the Romans. Why? Because they didn't really like the Romans. He couldn't say a whole lot good about them. Because he hated them. Notice verse 5. He said, for we have found this man, he's talking about Paul, to be a troublemaker, a man who is constantly inciting the Jews throughout the world to riots and rebellions against the Roman government. He is a ringleader of the sect known as the Nazarenes. Moreover, he was, he was trying to defile the temple when we arrested him. 
You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. And then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. So the prosecution laid down their case. In verse 10, we find phase two, which is the defense. Says in verse 10, now it was Paul's turn. The governor motioned for him to rise and speak. And Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years. And this gives me confidence as I make my defense. You can quickly discover that it was no more than 12 days ago that I arrived in Jerusalem to worship at the temple. I didn't argue with anyone in the temple, nor did I incite a riot in any synagogue or on the street of the city. These men certainly cannot prove the things that they're accusing me of doing. But notice verse 14. He says, but I admit that I follow the way, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our ancestors. I firmly believe in the Jewish law and everything written in the books of prophecy. I have hope in God, just as these men do, that he will raise both the righteous and the ungodly. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and everyone else. Think about that clear conscience. How many of you went to bed last night with a clear conscience? How many of you turned your lights off and your conscience was talking to you? If you know anything about the conscience, you know that God speaks through your conscience. God lets you know where you are with him through your conscience. Amen? Paul said, I try to keep my conscience clean before God and before everybody else. In verse 17, it says, after several years away, Paul says, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ritual. There was no crowd around me that day and no rioting. But some Jews from the province of Asia were there And they ought to be here today to bring charges if they have anything against me. I asked these men, uh, I, I asked these men here what wrongdoing the Jewish high council found in me, except for one thing that I said when I shouted. That was when he made reference to the high priest. But notice this last sentence. He said, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead now friends the only thing that Paul was indeed guilty of was his belief in the resurrection to come that Jesus talked about and Jesus preached and Jesus taught them the Old Testament made reference to the resurrection to come he believed in that but here's the thing believing in the resurrection was not a crime It wasn't a crime. It wasn't a crime under Jewish law, under Roman law, and certainly not under God's law. So their problem was simply a theological difference and not a civil or criminal offense. So when you look at everything and it it all fleshes out, this case had no business being tried in a Roman court. And Felix didn't have to spend much time figuring that out. Felix still had a problem. But Paul was innocent. The prosecution 
stated their case. Paul defended himself. Beginning in verse 22, we see the, fa- the third phase, and that's the verdict. Felix listened to both sides, as any judge would do, and he finds himself in a dilemma. He has to decide what he's going to do with Paul. That was a big problem. But he had an even bigger problem. What was he going to do with Jesus? Trust me, that was a far bigger problem. Concerning Paul, Felix knows that uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. That means Paul had certain rights. And he also knew that there had been no witness that had stepped forward to validate any of the charges that had been brought against Paul. Not even the Sanhedrin could specifically say he was guilty of any crime. Felix also knew that Paul was a Christian. He was a follower of the way. Christians were first known as people of the way. It was a reference to Jesus being the way of salvation. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes back to the Father except through me. Jesus is that way. Nobody comes back to the Father except through Jesus. Felix knew something else. He knew that Christians were not political revolutionaries. So he knew that all of these charges were unfounded. And that meant there was only one correct verdict that he could possibly give under Roman law. And that was that Paul was indeed innocent. Paul was innocent. But there was a problem. Paul being innocent wasn't politically correct. And he knew that if he released him, there was going to be all kinds of problems. And he couldn't afford to do that. He knew that if he released Paul, there was going to be rioting in the streets. And looting and all kinds of things was going to break out. Dr. John MacArthur writes, like many politicians before and since who have been trapped between justice and popularity, Felix decided that the wisest course was to avoid making a decision. Look at verse 22. That's what Felix does. Felix, who was uh, quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing. After both sides had presented their case, Felix just says, okay, we're going we're gonna to stop right here. Where he put, it, put everything off. He was stalling and he said, wait until Lysus, the governor of the garrison commander arrives and then I'm going to decide the case. We got to think back to what we talked about last week. The, the commander had already submitted a written report with all, all of his findings to the governor. And so it's highly unlikely that he's going to add anything to his report. In fact, again, if you look in Scripture, you don't find that Felix even called for the Roman commander to give him any more information. So he's really just stalling, putting things off, trying not to make the decision. In verse 23, it says he ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of him uh, and take care of his needs. Two things that that decision brought about. One, it temporarily appeased the Jews because if he'd released him, they'd have had a riot. By keeping him incarcerated, it at least meant that he wasn't going to be turned loose, that there would probably be another judgment down the road. It also made it easier for Paul to have a little bit of freedom to meet his friends, to to have food, to be able to enjoy their company, and to be able to continue some of his ministry But I want you to notice what happened next. And this is really the most important part of this entire message. Notice what happened in verse 24. 
It says a few days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. This husband and wife were curious about the Lord. They didn't know him personally, but they wanted to know. They may have even been seekers. They may have been seeking after God. We don't really know just where they are other than they didn't know the Lord personally at that point in time. So Paul, what did he do? He wasted no opportunity to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Felix had been focused on solving outward social problems, but now Paul leads him to focus on his own inward spiritual problems. Paul tactfully zeroes in on every sinner's spiritual dilemma. It's a dilemma that every one of us at some point in our lives have to face. And he breaks it down into three parts, and he's very careful to do that. Look with me at verse 25. It says, Paul reasoned with them. He's got Felix and Drusilla there in his presence, and he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Three things. He first mentions righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, it is the absolute standard demanded by God's holy nature. The absolute standard demanded by God. Now, I wish more of our kids were in here. They really need to hear this. So many of our kids in our school system today are being taught that there are no absolute standards. That God is not even real. That God is not absolute. Well, he is. Scripture bears that out. We have testimony. We have evidence of that in the Scripture. Righteousness is the absolute standard demanded by God's holy nature. God expects us to be righteous. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, But you are to be perfect. What does that mean? It means we're to be without sin. God is holy, is he not? God is perfect, is he not? He is righteous. God is right with everybody. God does not sin. He is without sin. Jesus said, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That simply means you and I are to be right with God. Our vertical relationship with God is to be right. There should be no hindrance between us and God. No sin that defiles that relationship. But not only are we to be right with God, we're to be right with our neighbor. We're to get along with our brothers and sisters and our, and our wives and our husbands and, and everybody. How many of us are able to do that? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he writes, But because the God who called you is holy, you must be holy in every aspect of your life. Be holy because I am holy, God says. God wants us to be righteous. But our problem, according to Romans chapter 3 verse 10, is this. There is no one who always does what is right, not even one. No one who does what is right all the time. You may be better than the person that you're seated next to. 
You may be better than the neighbor that lives across the street from you, but you are not perfect like God. We all fall short of God's standard. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There are a lot of people that Felix was not right with in his heart. He didn't treat everybody fairly. And he certainly wasn't right with God. You see, Felix, when he was married to his second wife, he stole the young bride of the king of Syria. She wasn't even 20 years old. So like King David, he stole another man's wife. He committed the sin of adultery, so he wasn't right with God, neither was he right with his neighbor. And you know what? I'm sure he knew about it. I'm sure his conscience bothered him every day as he thought about it. God demands from us righteousness, does he not? Amen. He also talks about self-control. Well, what's self-control? Self-control is man's required response to bring him into conformity with God's law. Now, Paul, speaking to those who live their lives out of control, said these words. He said in Ephesians 4.19, they don't care anymore about right or wrong, and they have given themselves over to immoral ways. Their lives are filled with all kinds of impurity and greed. That is the product of pushing God out of your life. When you push God and his standard out of your life, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to wind up just like that, living, doing anything you want to do. And that was certainly what Felix was doing with his life, and he knew it. But notice the third thing that Paul mentions here. He's got these two people right in front of him. He talked to them about living right before God. He talked about self-control in their life. And I'm sure that they're squirming in their seat. But then Paul brings up the third subject, that of judgment. Judgment is the inevitable result of failing to control oneself so as to live up to God's standard. The result of not being who God wants you to be. Now, you can only imagine that since Felix was living with a woman that he lured away from her husband, it's not a surprise that Felix became very frightened and uneasy. In fact, the scripture says that. I mean, God speaking through Paul exposed the secret sins of Felix, and it scared him to death. Look at what scripture says. It says, Felix was terrified. But terrified of what? If there's no God, why do you need to be terrified? I think he was terrified of two things. The first, I think he began to worry that just maybe there is a God. Maybe God's real. Maybe he's everything that he said he was. And the second thing I think he began to think about, you know, if God's real, then one day I'm going to have to stand in front of him and give account of everything I've ever said and everything I've ever done. Guys, can you imagine having to do that? I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. Can you imagine having to stand before God and he plugged your memory stick in or your DVD in and it played your life from A to Z and everything you'd ever done was put on the big screen? How many of you want to get in line for that day? I don't think any of us do. Amen? Amen. 
But that's what Felix is afraid of. He knows what God knows. He knows what other people don't know. And he's scared to death. In Matthew 12, and I want you to listen to this because this this just talks about words we say. It doesn't talk about things we do. In Matthew 12, 35, Jesus said, A good person produces good words from a good heart. And an evil person produces evil words from an evil heart. And I tell you this, that you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say now reflect your fate then. Either you will be justified by them or you will be condemned. Paul said, yes, each person, each of us will have to give a personal account to God. Imagine that threesome, Paul, Felix, Drusilla. Paul speaks about righteousness. He speaks about self-control. He speaks about the judgment to come. Felix is squirming in his seat. I'm sure that his blood pressure was rising. I'm sure his pulse was racing. He's sweating alligator bullets down the side of his cheeks. His clothes are soaking wet. He's thinking about all the things that he'd done wrong. He's thinking about the times that God pointed them out through his conscience And he's troubled. Oh, yes, he's troubled. But, guys, he's not sorry for his sin. He's worried, but not enough to want to change. He's briefly bothered, but not enough to turn away from his sin and turn to God. Felix did what thousands and thousands of people do every Sunday when pastors finish their message and they give invitations. He's doing the same thing that people do today. Felix, like so many people, wasted his opportunity to get right with God. He made a decision not to take that opportunity and he moved on in his own strength without God and he put off for another day what he should have done in that moment. What's the Bible say? Today is the day of salvation. Why did it say that? Because if you put off to tomorrow what you could have done today, there might not be a tomorrow. I've said this many times. Young people hear me in this. The greatest opportunity for you to ever be saved is when God first knocks on your heart. Why? Because that's when your heart is soft and tender. It's pliable. It's penetrable. But the older you get and the more you say no to God, the harder your heart gets. And it's not that God doesn't speak loudly to you. It's that you can't hear him anymore. That's why you've heard me say in my 28 years of ministry, I've probably seen less than 15 people over the age of 65 saved. Why? Because by that point, you're so hardened to God, you can't hear him. It's a known fact. 80% of the people who accept Christ do so before 18 to 21. That's why we put so much emphasis on trying to reach kids when they're young. 
Because the older you get, the more the world gets a hold of you. And the harder it is for you to turn from your sin and turn to God and trust Christ. Today is the day of salvation. But look at what Felix says. Look at what he says. Go away for now. When it is more convenient, I'll call you again. I'll call for you again. That's what people say every Sunday in invitation. God, I hear you, but I'm just not ready today. I'm going to put it off next week or the next week or the next week. And you know what? You never get around to it. You go back and look in Scripture, you'll find that there's no evidence that Felix ever turned to God, neither him nor his wife. He stands for all time as a tragic example of a missed opportunity to know God, as a tragic example of of not being forgiven, of not being made right, of not being saved. Oh, what a terrible waste. You want to know why it's so terrible, why it's so sad? It's because it's free. I don't know of anything in this world that you can get today that's free. There's always a string attached to it. Always, but not with God. Salvation is free. Forgiveness is free. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, who you've been with. It doesn't matter. God loves you, and he's faithful to keep his promise to you. If you will turn and trust in him, believe in his son, ask for forgiveness, and come in repentance, he'll forgive your sin and save your soul. And it can happen for anybody today. Don't put off to tomorrow what you can do today. I want you to look at a passage of scripture with me in 1 John. Chapter 1 verse 7. Pay careful attention to these words. In verse 7 John writes, But if we are living in the light of God's presence, just as Christ is, then we have fellowship with each other, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. Notice the second word, but if. You can circle that word if. Because you either are or you're not. Either you are living in the presence of God's light or you're not. And if you are, then your sins have been cleansed away. But if you're not, then you still have sin on your soul. And if you have sin on your soul, guess what? You are not going to get into heaven. That's what keeps us from getting there. God is a holy God. He lives in a holy place. And if we show up at his door with sin on our soul, we are less than holy. We're not perfect. We're not going to get in. Now, some of you might say, well, preacher, I ain't done anything that bad. Well, how bad is bad? Is stealing a 25-cent piece of candy as bad as going out and murdering somebody? And, 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 and the world today, the world would say, no. You steal a piece of candy, your mama will put you in time out. You caught in Texas murdering somebody, and they can prove it to be first-degree premeditated murder, they're going to put a needle in your arm. The world says the two are different. But in God's eyes, sin is sin. 
Stealing is just as bad as murdering. Same place it says thou shalt not murder, it says thou shalt not steal. It doesn't qualify either one. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. And yes, you have sinned. In fact, verse 8 says, if you say you have no sin, you're only fooling yourselves and, and refusing to accept the truth. Look at verse 10. If we claim that we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Friends, God knows everything you've ever done. He has a perfect record of that. He has a whole volume of your life. Let me, let me just say this. The last thing God wants to do is judge any of us. Amen? He wants to forgive us. He wants to save us. Look at verse 9. That, that, that's what this verse tells me. It says, if we confess our sins to him, he's what? He's faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. He is just waiting. Waiting for you. Waiting for someone. To say, I'm sorry, Lord. I've sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? Save my soul and forgive it of all its sin. God wants nobody to go to hell. Hell wasn't even created for us. It was created for angels, fallen angels. God created heaven. In fact, heaven's still being constructed. Jesus has been gone 2,000 years preparing a place for us. And when it's done, he's coming back. It's what the Lord said. Look at this last verse. Hebrews 3, 7 says, So then, as the Holy Spirit says, if you hear God's voice today, not my voice, but God's voice, if God is speaking to your conscience, do not be stubborn. Do not be stubborn. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be rebellious. Be submissive and humble and appreciative of God. Some of you here this morning are like the philosophers that Paul preached to. Oh, I know you're in church. I know that. I, I thank God you are. But you're here and you're not yet sure that God really exists. Think about that. You're just not sure that God's real. Some of you are like the wannabe disciples. You got one foot in and one foot out. You, you want to be a part of the world, but yet you want to go to heaven when you die. But you can't make up your mind which side you want to be on right now. There's no commitment in you. Some of you are like Judas. You look like a Christian. You walk like a Christian. You talk like a Christian. But in the end, you just might not be. What did Jesus say? He said, some will say unto me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that for you? But Jesus said, depart from me for I knew you not. What are you? God is faithful. Don't you ever forget that.
God is faithful. And I can tell you this, no matter what your decision is today, God will always be faithful to keep his promise. He said in his word, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be what? Saved. So if you don't get saved, it's not God's fault. Just know he loves you. In spite of who we are, he loves us. And he cares about us. And there's nothing that would please him more than for you to give your heart to Jesus today. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's that's what he's here for. He came to give you an opportunity. Don't be like Felix. Don't squander your opportunity. Make the most of it because you're not guaranteed another one. In a minute, I'm going to give you an invitation for you to come and respond to God. I don't know if you're a person who's lost that needs Jesus. I don't know if you're a Christian who's saved that needs to recommit your life to the Lord. I don't know where you are, what you're going, what's going on in your life. But you're here for a reason. And there's something God said to you today. And my prayer is that you'll respond to God and do what he wants you to do. Don't put off to tomorrow what you can do today. You're not going to have a better opportunity than today. Let's pray. Father, tough words for a tough world. But Lord, you love us so much, so much. For you to express that love on a cross by giving your son for us, there's no greater expression of your love, no greater sacrifice that could be given for any of us than that. Lord, there's someone here today that needs you. I know that. I've looked into the eyes of several here today that I, I see struggling with who they are and what they are. Lord, you know them better than I will ever know them. You know them better than they know themselves. And you know what they need. You've already provided that through Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will work in their heart and help them to, to realize the awesome opportunity they have to be saved today. And Lord, I pray that you would bind Satan, take from our minds any hindrance that would be put in our way that would keep us from doing what you desire for us to do. Lord, save those that need to be saved today. Help those who are struggling with their Christian life to recommit themselves fresh and anew today. God, do in any of us and every one of us what you desire today, I pray.